you think back and and I reminisce all the time about when predators were common across the landscape. And I bet we never would have seen a three-legged bison. You know, that was that was food for predators. <laughs> and so every time I see a three-legged animal or you know a deformed animal, it actually yeah, you know, first you think, "Wow, that's so cool. Look how resilient nature is." But then I get thinking, "Man, that's so out of place. Nature wouldn't historically probably would have never let that thing live and use resources. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is where hope grows. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hey champions, today's episode features the trifecta of Mother Nature's brilliant design. We are talking all things bison, wolves, and grassland birds. How these stories fit together has to do with the gifts of allowing a keystone species to co-create in an environment while realizing its fullest biological potential. These stories are real-life examples of how complex ecosystems are, as well as how in nature nothing exists in isolation. I think this is best put in the simple words of John Muir when he said, When one tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds it is attached to the rest of the world. Well said, John. Today's episode, we are going to explore what happens to grassland birds when we alter the ecosystem. Then we're going to explore how bison and other large undulate animals can positively impact that system. But before that, we're gonna explore nature's creative design as ranchers think about co-creating in an ecosystem with large apex predators. What is the biological role of wolves, bears, mountain lions, all those things that would kick your ass in two seconds? And how did bison become the largest native land prey species to survive the last ice age and all the prehistoric apex predators that hunted on it for survival? To help frame this story, we're going to begin with our favorite bison wrangler, Bob Lee Wesley. Now to review, Bob oversees the management of over 2 million acres of land in North America. And he's in charge of over 50,000 bison, many of which are located in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Without further ado, here's my man, Bob Lee Wesley. So, Bob, to begin, how have bison co-evolved alongside predator species and how did this how does this impact their behavior? Yeah, well, Bison have a long evolution history, especially here in North America, and they co-evolved with predator species that are no longer on the landscape. Short-nosed bears and cheetahs and saber-toothed tigers and the like, and uh, they kind of outlived them all. And so the 
the big predator species we have now seem kind of puny to a bison, I would say. Grizzly bears and wolves, they're, they're hardly even a threat. That's a really interesting way to start this conversation, but you're, you're, you're right, man. All these ice age apex predators, it would have been three or four times the size of these modern day predators. They, they outlived them. They survived. They, their resiliency is so embedded in their genetics. And so, um, it's pretty special for a big prey species like a bison. Um, can you, can you describe what is known as I've heard different iterations of this, but I call it the predator prey relationship or the dynamics that have an impacted how modern bison behave. So some of those characteristics, like, you know, that herd instinct or the, the instinct to move frequently, how did that all begin? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess this is not my specialty. So some of this, I'm just speculating um, some of it, I'm sure I've heard other people tell me, um, but it is all kind of speculation because no one was around to watch this evolve in the first place. But I guess I would say that, um, you know, bison, their predator coping strategy is just safety in numbers to a large extent. Bison all calve at the same time, much like a lot of animals in nature. They just prey swamp predator species so there you go yep they dump all their calves on the ground at the same time and there's so much prey available all at once for a very short amount of time they just kind of assure that they don't completely wipe out this year's calf crop a few will get taken and that's fine but there's lots more there to to replace them i believe that's called prey swamping or something along that lines yeah, um, I've known that as predator swamping. Okay. But I think prey that's swamping makes more sense. That's probably more right. Um, so, you know, so I think that's safety in numbers uh, starting at that level. And then also just forming large herds and and being together. That's got to look pretty formidable if you're a, a grizzly bear or a small wolf pack coming across the landscape. You've, you're... It's pretty daunting to have hundreds of animals that are there to defend against you. Um, Absolutely. So, so if, if, you know, that, that wolf pack, for example, is going to decide to, to, to try to harvest a bison, feed that wolf pack. Um, first of all, what, what, what animal within the herd do you think would be, well, most predisposed or kind of like that target animal class to ambush? And then how does how does a bison herd defend itself against such predators? Sure. So, you know, I think that that predators are pretty smart about uh, energy conservation and they're not going to waste their time on a big, strong animal. They can pretty readily identify a, a sick, weak, young animal and uh that's the one that they're going to single out and or they're going to look for that lone animal out on the landscape the old bull that maybe got injured during rut and has sorted himself off that's what they're going to work after in the absence of of a readily available target like a lone animal or a, a sick weak one lagging back from the herd um a wolf pack especially is going to try to isolate an animal out of that herd. 
So that might mean getting the herd running and kind of the wolves sorting one off and, and chasing it down. Um, there's safety in numbers in a herd. Uh, not only will the whole herd try to defend against a predator, there's often a few animals within the herd, uh, usually, you know, old mature cows, quite often they're, they're dry cows, they're not raising a calf, and they will actually attack the predator species, like wolves or grizzly bears. They'll come out of the herd and kind of give themselves, not give themselves up, but they'll be the ones doing the attacking while the mothers are protecting their young. So that, you know, that's pretty interesting. That is interesting. And, and what gifts, you know, what characteristics of a bison make it a formidable um, opponent when, you know, fighting off a pack of wolf, wolves or another large predator species? What kind of tools or physiology does it have that gives it, you know, a level playing field or an upper hand? Yeah, well, obviously those those long, sharp horns, um, that's a pretty formidable weapon, but also their speed and agility. You know, they can run pretty darn fast um, and they can turn on a dime. And so they can kind of outmaneuver a lot of the, the predator species out there, especially think of something like a lumbering grizzly bear, you know, they can get it running in a straight line, uh, chasing them. And then they can, a bison can just turn on a dime and all of a sudden those sharp horns are in between them and, and that bear or whatever the predator species is, you know, yeah. they are remarkable fighters. All right, let's take a break because Bob just casually talked about how fast a bison can run. But I want to ask you, what do you think? So let's do a little pop quiz, multiple choice challenge for ultimate bragging rights. Okay, here's the question. A bison can run up to A, 15 miles per hour, B, 25 miles per hour, C, 35 miles per hour, or D, I am Canadian and I only think in kilometers per hour. I have no idea. The right answer for those of you who guess C as in cheetah, you are correct. Bison can run over 35 miles per hour. And I've personally clocked one running at 38 miles per hour on a road. Don't ask me why that happened. That was a disturbing day that I'd like to forget. Now, when we think about speed, we got to consider two things. We got to think about top end speed, like a sprint, and then speed in the context of endurance. Now, bison are gifted with incredible aerobic engines. Just to frame this up, compared to a beef cow, a bison's trachea, or the windpipe, can be up to three times larger. The heart can be twice as large, the lungs larger. So this animal, the physiology, the anatomy gifted to it by mother nature is designed for endurance. It's designed to carry an animal that's over 2,800 pounds at speeds of over 35 miles per hour for prolonged periods of time. As a matter of fact, bison have been recorded running at these top end speeds for over an hour. These animals are the quintessential endurance athletes. They put even Kenyan marathon runners to shame. Whereas the world record for a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, 
goes to an actual Kenyan named Iliud Kipchog, who ran a time of two hours, one minute and nine seconds. Well, if you took a middle of the pack bison, set them off at 35 miles an hour to run 26.2 miles, they would do it in less than 45 minutes. That's pretty damn fast. This is all fascinating. And when I hear about um, techniques and strategies to prevent predator ambush, have you heard or is there any truth to this this notion where if there is a weak animal within the herd, say it's that injured bull that was fighting in rut, um, have you observed or know any stories where that bull will be kicked out of the herd or that injured or weak animal will be kind of separated from the herd in order for that herd to maintain its strongest members and, and thereby not having its weakest link, which predisposes some of the animals to an ambush? Yeah, I, I have firsthand experience with that. Um, and it's it's a gradient. I've seen sick animals or, you know, injured animals get protected by the herd shortly after they get, let's use injured, for example. Um, I've seen an animal that broke its leg and I actually watched it get its leg broken. And as I come up to move that herd, that broken leg animal put itself in the middle of the herd and the rest of the herd kind of surrounded him and protected him. Um, and so they were protecting that injured animal, that exact same animal, three days later, we were going to move the herd and it hadn't got better. And I observed the exact same herd that were protecting him a couple of days earlier. Actually, when he tried to join the herd, they fought him off and pushed him out of the herd pushed him, you know, separated him away from the rest of the healthy animals. Um, and so I could only imagine in a, in a predator situation, you know, in that sense, I was moving that herd. I was the predator. And so if I was a wolf, they would have done the same thing at first, tried to protect him. Once they realized that he was just going to slow him down, they kicked him out of the herd. And I guess you could almost think of it. If we want to anthropomorphize. They were sacrificing that weak animal for their safety and security. That's the way I took it anyways. Holy smokes. That's fascinating. Whatever happened to that bison with the broken leg? You know, that one, <laughs> um, it, it eventually, it didn't heal. The leg actually fell off. Um, and he was a three-legged bison. And uh, I believe we ate him. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that always just, I'm just so in awe by mother nature's creations in their, in their purest form. You know, we have a deer out here that I cut from a fence. It was stuck in a, a fence and its leg was infected and its leg rotted off. And three years later, that deer is still out in the wild growing as a tripod. And it's just embodies the resilience of, of mother nature and the toughness of these, these wild animals. And it, it's really humbling to think about that bison being out there and being able to survive that, uh, be, being able to continue to live in an ecosystem where you and I, if one of our extremities was removed, would pretty much have no chance. Absolutely. You know, and you think back and, and I reminisce all the time about when predators were common across the landscape. And I bet we never would have seen a three-legged bison. You know, that was, that was food for predators. <laughs> mm. And so... Every time I see a three-legged animal or, you know, a 
deformed animal. It actually, you know, at first you think, wow, that's so cool. Look how resilient nature is. But then I get thinking, man, that's so out of place. Nature wouldn't historically probably would have never let that thing live and use resources. Absolutely. So there is another story and this is, you know, call it what you will folklore or an urban myth. You've heard of this. I've heard of this, but it's this legend of some kind of formation that we'll call the ring of horns. So before, you know, we get into this too much, can you explain what the ring of horns is. And then, you know, if you, if you've ever seen it, I, I can say I've never seen it, but we don't have large apex predators in central Texas. So this wouldn't necessarily be the right ecosystem to observe it. So yeah, go ahead. What is the ring of horns? Sure. Well, I guess it's not a term that I use commonly, but when you say ring of horns, what the image I conjure up in my mind is that classical image of muskox who form a tight circle, horns faced outwards, calves and weak animals secured in the center and become an impenetrable wall to, to whatever threat is challenging that herd. That's that's what I conjure up when I hear a ring of horns. Am I on the right track here with what you think of, Taylor? Absolutely. That that's That's what I'm thinking. It's like horns facing outward, you know, horns on the ground. Nothing gets in alive. If it somehow does get in, it's not leaving that inner circle. And, and yes, the weaker, the young animals are on the are on the inside. Sure. So I've never personally witnessed that. And I actually did a quick survey of Turner Ranch managers, some of which have been managing bison for almost 30 years. I couldn't find anybody who's ever witnessed that before. But I realized that just about everybody I talked to wasn't working in a landscape with large apex predators, with wolves and grizzly bears. So I dug a little deeper, and we have a on-staff wolf biologist um, who's been with us since wolves were released into Yellowstone and, and moved on to our Flying D Ranch in Montana. So she spent the last 25-plus years doing nothing but observing predator-prey interactions on the Flying D, especially as they relate to bison. And so I I think she's probably uniquely suited to answer this question. And uh, uh, she gave a, a long drawn out answer to the question, but the gist of it is she has never seen that exact behavior where mature cows surround the calves. But what she has seen, and as well as most of our ranch managers have seen, is um, in the presence of a threat, the calves kind of grouping together and the cows getting in between the threat and the calves. It's not a tight circle like you would think of with muskox, but there's definitely a behavior of mature animals defending weaker animals. And so, yeah, I, it may not be a ring of horns, but it's darn sure a wall of mad bison um, when confronted with a threat. Yeah, it's still a wall that you or I would would never be able to to penetrate on on foot. And Absolutely if, not. If we tried, we'd we'd get thrown up fifteen feet in the air. Best case scenario. Yes, for sure. So that you know, one thing that is interesting to me, and I think many of our listeners, is that you're kind of describing the the dynamics within the herd that are going to be defending the calves or. Maybe most folks not 
um, familiar with bison would assume that it would be these massive dominant bulls, these breeding bulls that are, you know, twice the size of these cows. But if, if I'm correct, you know, why, why is it that the cows are, are right there taking on the biggest risk and, and, and having all the fights? Well, my assumption, I think you're correct. It is the cows doing most of the fighting. So those bulls really only truly hang around the cow herd during breeding season. And after that, they separate themselves off, sometimes completely disappearing from the area. You know, if they're unfenced, they'll go off into the mountains or, you know, go off on their own. And so it really is the vast majority of the year. It is just the cows left to defend the calves. And then the other part of it is, and again, 100% anthropomorphizing here, but those bulls don't feel any fidelity to their offspring. You know, they bred 30, 40 cows this year. They got 30, 40 calves on the ground. And I don't think those bulls can identify who their calves are. Um, So I think it's that strong bond between a mother and her offspring is why you see the cows doing the fighting, even if bulls are around. Don't get me wrong. The bulls will defend themselves if attacked by a predator. You can see all sorts of pictures from Yellowstone of bulls fighting wolves. Um, But I don't know that they feel this strong sense of duty to protect the herd. They're kind of more every man for themselves. Yeah, I think I think we can we can see that within the within our human species too, where obviously in a family unit, men historically are tasked with kind of assuming like those traditional roles, protector, but you also can see this scenario where kind of like a grizzly bear, I mean, it, if you've ever pissed off a mama, um, that is one line you don't want to cross with with a human. It's like it reminds me of when our little baby girls used to be taking naps and, and like the mailman would knock on the door. I mean, Katie would get off the couch and damn near kill that guy. And so that was like her mama bison instinct to, to, yeah, just protect her young. It's kind of interesting. Um, Absolutely. So I would just love to, you know, if you, if you need a little time to think about it, you know, take your time, but do you have, um, a cool example of a story that you've seen something that you've seen or a story that you've heard from one of Turner ranches where there has been just a really interesting predator bison encounter. So Val Asher, our wolf biologist has been tracking wolf kills. She also does bear and and cougar and coyote as well, but, but she's been tracking all wolf kills on the flying D that she can identify for the last 20 plus years. And she does that through scat analysis and then also finds kill locations and, and scavenges off the kill locations. So she's trying to see what wolves are eating, uh, you know, what proportion of their diet is made up by what species. And then going even further into that and looking at the the health of the animals that the wolves are eating. And I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but bison altogether, even though there's a herd of 4,000 plus bison on the flying D and, and one or two wolf packs, depending on the year, bison altogether make up less than 1% of wolf 
wolves diet on the flying bee. Um, it's the vast majority is elk and then deer and then small stuff like rabbits and whatnot. Um, but even more interesting than that, um, she will look at the, at the nutritional status or the health of the whatever was eaten. And she does a lot of that through bone marrow analysis or looking at the bones and bone deformities and whatnot. And the vast majority of large ungulates that wolves eat are either uh, nutritionally compromised, meaning starving to death, or they have physical deformities, broken legs, um, weird feet, you know, club feet or something like that. And so it lends a lot of credibility to the fact that wolves do prey on the sick and weak. Um, and the fact that bison make up such a small percent of those wolves diet, even though they're living in and amongst them year round, man, if, if we were doing this on a cattle ranch and we were calving beef cows right in the middle of a wolf pack year after year, I mean, I could guarantee you that beef would make up a large portion of wolves diets because beef don't have that tendency to fight and protect their young and to, to herd up and, and ward off large predators. So absolutely in, in Val's words, you know, if she was a livestock producer in wolf country, the only livestock she would produce are bison. I mean, it, it fits the ecological context and the history of the ecosystem. So that makes so much sense. And I'm sure you've heard stories like I have where, yes, being a beef cow rancher is hard during calving season. But if you raise sheep or goats, I mean, there's scenarios, circumstances where dang near entire flocks have been wiped out overnight, um, where, where wolves will be killing animals almost for fun and, and not even consuming uh, all the resources for nourishment. And so you just don't see that with raising bison in wolf country. So I think you guys, you guys have nailed it. You're looking into mother nature's architecture and, and the design and being consistent with that. So obviously applause you for all your efforts there. Yeah. It's uh it's fun to raise I mean, we're raising bison, but in, in essence, they're also livestock because we are selling them for meat. And it is so much fun to raise them in a fully intact ecosystem that includes the apex predators all the way down to, you know, the high degree of biodiversity that we would hope we could find in an area to watch that the real natural interactions across a large landscape like that. It's just, it's phenomenal. And it, it is fun to see. Yep. And, and, and ultimately what I love about this is that you're co-creating with these apex predators and, and ultimately they're, they're, the wolves are providing a, a service and a role, which is, you know, you don't want to necessarily consume a sick or a weak bison. You don't want to sell that meat to a consumer, to another family. You want them eating hearty, resilient, adapted, strong, nourishing animals. And so just by having these wolves in the system, you're kind of weaning out the stuff that might not be best for human consumption, which I just, again, I, I think that's a beautiful system that is in the intelligence of nature. And, and you guys are just really consistent with that. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. 
Like most states in America, those who came before us have methodically eliminated many of our apex predators. While I certainly wouldn't want my children eaten by a hungry mountain lion, I also yearn to hear a pack of wolves howling at a full moon. Now, the work being done by Bob and our friends at Turner Ranches shows that you can have a successful livestock enterprise while simultaneously supporting large predator populations. It ultimately comes down to raising strong and resilient animals that fit your ecological context, as well as shifting your perspective on how we as inhabitants, land stewards, consumers, co-creators value wild places and wildlife. Let's shift gears. So in our next story, we're going to further explore the complex interactions within the architecture of an ecosystem. In this circumstance, we're going to look at grassland birds. You know what I'm talking about. Those adorable little creatures that make sweet little sounds and nest in vibrant biodiverse prairie ecosystems. Things like mountain plovers or lark bunting, sprigs pipit. Thick-billed longspur, chestnut-collared longspur, and then some of my favorites, which would be the red-winged blackbird and the meadowlark. Now, what do these sweet little birds have in common? Well, unfortunately, they've been hit hard with a 53% reduction in their population. This is the greatest bird decline in any single terrestrial biome. In total, 75% of bird species that depend on grasslands have seen a significant drop. Now, there seems to be a direct correlation between the decimation of these grassland birds and the loss of their grassland ecosystems, as well as the removal of large undulates from these terrains. But what if we could revive these systems by looking into the intelligence of nature? What if regenerative ranching was our greatest method to revitalizing these important bird species? What if bison could teach us how to co-create with birds in a way that strengthens our soil, our habitat, and our community? My next guest is Jared Matthew Holmes, an ecologist and zoologist who has been educating land stewards on the importance of nature and conservation for the last 15 years. If his name sounds familiar to you, that's because he is both a regular contributor to this podcast as well as a member of our Rome Ranch community. Without further delay, here's my friend, Jared Matthew Holmes. Okay, Jared, to begin, can you paint a picture? Can you articulate a vision of what maybe a pioneer family circa 1840s might have seen on the prairie? Like what kind of, what kind of bird species, what kind of, what kind of plants, what would, what would that have looked like? Oh, man, if we rewind the clock back to the 1840s, what those pioneers would have seen is this just amazing, diverse grassland in the Great Plains. I mean, there were 360 million more acres of grassland back then before it was converted to um, agriculture or tree encroachment from mismanagement of lands. So we're talking about heading into the the Great Plains and seeing, you know, little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, switchgrass that are six, seven feet tall. And then all of the bison. I mean, everybody listening to this podcast probably knows how many bison we have lost. But I mean, you're talking about herds that you would just be riding next to for days. And then the birds. Think about all the, the buffalo birds that were with that. 
And if you if you think of the European starlings that we see in murmurations now, and I'll think think the buffalo birds were just like that, and the meadow larks, and all these species that relied on those birds, and 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 it was just it would have been incredible. I mean, clouds of birds, just like clouds of bison, as Lewis and Clark put it. Yes, like solar eclipse caused by flocks of birds. So you said one thing that I thought was interesting, but you just casually kind of mentioned a buffalo bird. But I, I think if most people Google search what's a buffalo bird, they might not find the answer. So what is a buffalo bird? And then how did bison and grassland birds co-evolve? Yeah, so a bison bird, people might today call it a brown-headed cowbird. And if you live in Texas um, and you have worked with the extension offices here of uh, some of the state agencies, you know that we actually have a trapping season for these cowbirds. And that's because they're brood parasites or nest parasites. So these birds actually never learned how to make their own nest. What they learned how to do was follow the bison because the bison make lots of bison patties, which attract lots of insects, which are things that they like to eat but they would actually use the nest of something like Bell's Vireo and they would go in and they would kick out the eggs of the, the bird and then they would lay their own. And because birds don't really know what they look like, there's no mirrors in nature. They just raise those cowbirds like they're their own. And then the cycle repeats. And that wasn't a big deal until cows showed up and then the migrations stopped. And then the, Buffalo birds or cowbirds just stayed in one spot, constantly putting pressure on these, you know, nesting birds. And so uh, songbirds and, and some of these grassland species, the decline just happened very, very quickly um, at the turn of the, the century. Right. So think 1890s to um, early 1900s with the ending of open range, um, which is still one of the greatest travesties in American um, ecosystem services, period. Yes. So, okay. So that that's interesting, man. I, I always have to think that nature somehow created a symbiotic relationship for those bison birds or brown-headed cowbirds. You know, they have a bad reputation, like you mentioned, but they also are, have the opportunity to do good things. Like you kind of touched on going into the bison manure, picking out parasites or insects, spreading that fertility over the prairie. So, you know, yeah, just looking at it holistically, as we've created a dysfunctional ecosystem, we've created a, a problem where it probably didn't exist before. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, just to go back, like they call bison ecosystem engineers or keystone species and the whole famous uh, Robert Payne study on when you remove a, a link in the in the chain the whole system can collapse. And so when you take the bison out of an ecosystem, the ecosystem doesn't know how to respond. And how it responded was buffalo birds increased and songbirds and ground nesting birds decreased because the system was broken. And one of the guiding principles of holistic management is how do you fix that weak link? So, okay, what is a keystone species? How does a bison fit that role? What does that actually mean? And what, what, what makes a bison a keystone species? So uh, if you think of a keystone species, think of an arch and you have that keystone at the top. And when you remove that stone from that arch, the arch collapses. 
And so these keystone species are things like bison, beaver, otters, star, um, starfish. So you take all these little um, ecotones. And if so, if we start again to touch back to the Robert Payne study who discovered the, uh, the keystone species, he took a species of starfish out of a tidal pool on the Pacific coast. And that whole tidal pool collapsed. The starfish was was the link to keeping that tidal pool healthy. So no one species was able to just take off and dominate and create monocultures. You know, Mother, Mother Nature creates stability through diversity. And with the otters, and you think of the kelp forest, the otters eat the urchins, which eat the kelp. If you remove the otters, the urchins take over and destroy the kelp forest. If you think of the wolves in Yellowstone, a, a classic um, example of that, how the, the elk were able to just take over. And um, when they brought the wolves back, river systems shifted again, water became cleaner. And with the bison, it's the same thing. You, you take this huge migratory animal that's keeping the Great Plains um, a grassland and really knocking back the woody encroachment um, through, through hoof action and, um, and grazing principles. It just was the the bison were the link to make everything work in that in that grassland. So how did the the near decimation of the bison impact the prairie and what consequences were observed with grassland birds? Oh, well, so let's let's take a minute to talk about a a study Um, in the early 2000s um, in the tall grass prairie preserve. So this is in um, Osage County, Oklahoma. So think Southeast Oklahoma, if my memory serves correct. Uh, You had Brian Coppage who was cleaning out nesting boxes on the preserve and started to notice that there were just bison hair in in all of these nests. So he took this deep dive and of the 113 um, nests that he collect, that he collected, almost all of them had hair um, from the from the bison in it and so then he took a deeper dive and he started looking at the components of that and so if we take something like uh, bell's vireo which is a small nesting uh, small bird that nests above the the ground so it's like a, a mid canopy nester its nest had 15 percent bison hair um, and the american goldfinch which is another one that's of those mid canopy nesters it had a 10 percent um, uh, component of bison hair. And so w- what we tease out from that is as you go higher in the canopy, bison hair becomes very, very important in these grasslands as a nest insulator. Think about how those storms blow in across the prairie. You need something to protect you from those high winds and all that rain and precipitation. So what uh, I mean, we talked about in an earlier podcast that the, the, the insulative properties of bison hair is incredible. So you think about survivorship, um, in these these colder, damp regions that have really harsh winters um, and even early sp- springs, you know the bisons play a huge role in in the nest success um, of these grassland birds. Wow, there. This is just to reiterate a point that there's no waste in in nature. Mother Nature has a purpose for everything. And how are these birds acquiring? How are they mining this bison fur? So. Most of these birds are going out and just finding it, you know, as the bison um, shed their fur, as the seasons change, these birds go out, they grab clumps, 
and they bring them back to their nest. It's the, it's the same thing that they, they do now. I know, um, w when I would shave my poodle, um, we, we throw the, the hair out and you just watch the birds come in and just attack it. It looks a little different on the landscape and the birds just kind of sense it and know and go in and grab it. One of my favorite exercises for all of you listening with kids, give them tweezers and have them try to build a nest like a bird would. So you're using two pairs of tweezers with your hands and you got to interweave this. I mean, these birds are really, really incredible when you think about the architecture that goes into these nests and weaving that, that bison hair in there is just spectacular. That's, that's wonderful, man. Um, you know, we, we look at a lot of birds nest out here and clean out our nesting boxes seasonally. And, and yeah, like what you're saying, I've seen that firsthand where it's damn near impossible to find a bird's nest within a, you know, 15 mile radius of the ranch that doesn't have bison hair incorporated in it at some capacity. Yep. There is no waste in nature. It's pretty incredible. And, and one of the things that I think we need to start looking at in a scientific way here in central Texas is does the bison hair insulate the other way around? Are those nesting boxes a little bit cooler? And does that help with nesting success in, in the hill country? So, okay. Moving kind of forward to modern day, what, what is the biggest factor impacting grassland birds as we see it? Oh, loss of habitat, 100% loss of habitat. I mean, when you think about Texas, um, three quarters of the state used to be a grassland or a savanna. Um, and a savanna, like think, you know, Lion King, Timon and Pumbaa. I don't know if I'm dating myself or not with that reference, but the a savanna is 50-50 grass to trees, but there's no closed canopy or very little closed canopy in those trees. So you have these these vast open grasslands with you know trees kind of intersected, much like the African savanna. The hill country, um, in terms of climate, is very similar to that. And as we lose habitat to subdivisions, and as we are losing more and more habitat in the Great Plains to row crop agriculture and monocrop agriculture, that's just really hard on these birds. And when you think about how those um, those big ag fields are treated, constant spraying of pesticides and chemicals. What does that do to the food source that's there? When you think about birds that are eating insects, there's grassland birds that eat insects. You know, think uh, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. Uh, I don't have to say any more than that. And then when you think about all of the other stuff that's going on there and you have the the birds that are eating the grass seed heads, the spray over effect on a native prairie right next to a monocrop. I mean, that grass is not going to have the same nutritional component and that's really going to strain these birds, but just losing that, that nesting material too. I mean, it's a lot harder to make a nest out of corn than it is little blue stem. Mm. Yep. You're describing, you know, a chemical, and a mechanical warfare against mother nature and these grassland birds in a sense. And the the other image that I conjure is like, I, I know we've talked about this before, but after the combine comes and harvests the cash crop, it's, it's complete decimation. Any bird species that was in the way, or if a field is tilled, um, everything dies. It turns into an ecological desert. And, and I know you've seen this, I see this, but every time there's a tilled field, in one of my neighbor's property, we have 
you know, scavenger birds like caracaras flying over and coming in by the tens and twenties and thirties, just eating all the dead animals in that field. Yeah. I mean, how vegan is that? Right. <laughs> that's I mean, that's think about, true. Yeah. The, the carbon footprint of, of what these monocultures do for these um, vegans and vegetarians. I mean, your, your hands are not free of blood. It's, it's very, very cruel. The, the one bison our family eats a year compared to the hundreds of thousands of death. If you're not growing your own food, you know, it's just crazy to think about. So you bring up a good point. And I want, I want to ask this question. So if you're a bird lover, if you are going to make eating decisions and be a conscious om omnivore, you know, what's, what is the diet that I think you already alluded to it is probably the most destructive diet for these grassland birds, but then also on the other, on the other side, how do you eat in a way that's conducive to creating habitat and environment? And, and what does that look like? Yeah. So when you think about, um, your, your diet and where your food comes from, I think if you are really conscious about it, the best place to start is by going to a farmer's market and knowing, you know, your local rancher and asking them, Hey, are you an Audubon certified habitat? Are you a backyard certified habitat? Um, what kind of chemicals are you seeing? And then ask them about the birds too. Like a lot of these um, farmers and ranchers might have the, the wildlife exemption or valuation, not exemption, um, for their taxes instead of ag um, because they want to help the habitat as a whole. And surveying for birds, surveying for nesting boxes, and putting up um, artificial feed stations for these birds is, is part of that wildlife valuation plan. And so you can start to tease out some of these questions, but it all is going to come back to just knowing where your food comes from and being conscious about that. Love it. Two, 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 two more questions. So one, why should people care about grassland birds? And maybe what other, like what ecological services, what are they actually doing that people should care about? Well, in terms of ecosystem services, um, and ecosystem services are something that an animal or um, plant does that provides some kind of um, economical benefit to humans um, in a particular landscape. So when you think about birds, what does everybody do? to go back to my son's favorite book. Everybody poops, right? And when you think about the amount of nitrogen in chicken shit, now think about all of those ground nesting birds that are doing the same thing that those chickens are doing um, and grassland birds, not, not to just you know, concentrate on ground nesting birds, but you know, they're, they have to poo, right? And they scratch up you know, dung looking for insects. So they're spreading out um, all that, that manure into fertilizer, helping it put back into the ground. So the, the amount of dollars in fertilizer that these birds are creating naturally and putting on the landscape naturally, I mean, I'm, I hope that there's a number out there. I know we're looking into it right now with bats and I'm more of a bat biologist than ornithologist. Um, but that's a, that's a really important number and that's all natural. I mean, that's cycling carbon and nitrogen the right way, the natural way. Yeah. And, you know, I think the important thing, too, that we all have to realize is every species matters. There is uh, nothing more fascinating a theory or scary as a fact as extinction. Extinction means extinction. This species has not come back. 
I know the world is all, you know, loving the fact that we're going to clone a mammoth. That's not a mammoth. That's not actually going to be a mammoth. That's that thing's a fucking elephant monstrosity from the Isle of Dr. Monroe, if it ever even happens. And people just have to realize that we all play a role in this cog that is this wheel, that is this earth, that is Mother Nature. Everything matters. And when we start to think that things don't matter, I mean, really, what are we doing as a species when it comes down to that? It's just it's just scary. I mean, human nature, we we really need to think about the little guys and how we can help. Not all of these species can adapt and change to this environment that that we are artificially creating. And the only species to ever go extinct is one that cannot adapt to a changing environment. Well said, Jared. So do you believe in reincarnation or what, is, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I think when our our energy leaves, it has to go somewhere, right? I mean, thermodynamics tells us that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be transferred. So we're going to transfer somewhere. Okay. Well, I'm going to just... Let's just pretend like you are reincarnated, okay? So here's the here's the final question. So you're reincarnated after this life, your energy is expanded and goes into a little egg. And that egg is going to be the grassland bird of your choice. So what grassland bird would you be reincarnated in as if you had the choice and why? Ooh. Ooh. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, right away, there's a few birds that that come to mind. One is the Boba Link, because it sounds like Boba Fett, and I do like Star Wars. One is the Dick Sizzle, because it's fun to say, and they have a beautiful song. But I really have to think it's going to be the Meadowlark. You know, if anybody's ever seen a Meadowlark um, dancing over the grass and flittering up and down, and then giving its little teak, 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 and they're a pretty social bird, and they'll... They'll sit and they'll watch you, and you can sit and watch them and and take a take a moment. Um, yeah, I think the meadowlark would be be my answer. That's a beautiful answer, Jared. Uh, I love meadowlarks too, and so maybe I'll be reincarnated, and we can just be broing out, you know, on a pasture and doing our meadowlark things, living our best meadowlark lives together. That'd be great, man. Now, when we purchased our ranch over six years ago, we inherited over 600 acres of highly degraded land. Over half of that was previously farmed fields practicing industrial agriculture. So think tractors, tills, herbicides, chemical fertilizers, etc. Now, we conducted a bird count early on and surveyed less than 10 bird species that cohabitated on our property. Now, fast forward to today, And we are documenting over 60 different species of birds cohabitating on our ranch. That is a 600% increase in bird species diversity. That number continues to grow as we create more habitat, capture more rainfall, improve the health of our soil, and increase the biodiversity of plant species out here. This, my friends, is a beautiful reminder. This is the reminder that you might need today, that Mother Nature's capacity and resiliency, her innate potential to heal, is greater than our own species' misapplied capacity for destruction. Now, like all episodes, I'm going to read some real-life, actual, factual reviews of the podcast. And up until this point, all these reviews have made me feel really good. But today, 
from Bob and Becky. Check this out. I added your podcast to my playlist. Sounds good, right? But honestly, after a number of F-bombs being dropped, I left! Exclamation point. I would love to hear your message, but with such a lack of taste, I won't tune back in. Well, Bob and Becky, I hope that you could appreciate that I tried not to drop any F-bombs on this episode. Might be the first one in history, so big shout out to you. As always, I want to thank my guest, Bob Lee Wesley, Jared Matthew Holmes, for taking the time, sharing your passion, your experience, and your wisdom with myself and all of our listeners. Now, in honor of Bob and Becky, I'm going to end this podcast with a prayer. And this is, this is the, the inspiration for this prayer was created by my six-year-old daughter, Scout, but I just took it to the next level. So check this out. Dear God, we thank you for the sun that shines above us, the soil that nourishes below us, the friends that sit beside us, the family that shares love between us, and the food which will soon become us. Say amen if you're feeling that.